Welcome to Bioethics On Air, the program that brings you thoughtful, in-depth commentary on ethics at the crossroads of science, medicine, and daily life. I'm Joe Zalot, your host. We are a broadcast of the National Catholic Bioethics Center in Philadelphia. This is part two of my interview with Mary Rice Hassan, director of the Catholic Women's Forum at the Ethics Public Policy Center. In the first part of the interview, Mary discussed the forum's person and identity project and explained what gender ideology is, along with some of the many challenges it presents. In the second part, Mary discusses the origins of gender ideology and how it has become entrenched in our culture, particularly in our public schools. Mary, I'd like to start off this interview with this question. So gender ideology and transgenderism have arisen and become entrenched very, very quickly in our culture. What factors cause this? Well, thanks again for covering this topic. This is just so tremendously important, and I think there's so much misinformation. And one reason why there's so misinformation is how it has spread through the culture. So even though gender ideology is rooted in in theories about the person, and it has roots in atheism, uh, Marxism, nihilism, and, and radical feminism, even though it has roots in sort of those theories, what happened was... Uh, gender became a category that applied to the person through the work of Dr. John Money. And he was a psychologist and he called himself a sexologist who worked primarily with people who either were born with some uh, defect of development that made it not impossible, but difficult to determine at birth whether they were male or female. And we commonly call that intersex, but really the technical name is uh, people who are born with a disorder of sexual development, just as you can have a disorder of the development of your heart or a disorder of the development of part of your brain. This was a disorder of sexual development. So he was used to working with people who suffered from that, but also uh, with a very small category of adults who primarily men, almost exclusively men back in the 50s and 60s, who who uh, wanted to present as female. They wanted to live life as a female. And this was related to a a sexual fetish, really, called autogonophilia, where these men would become sexually aroused at the very thought of themselves being female and being a woman. And then they would be moved to try to seek treatments to allow them to alter their bodies so that they could present as a woman. The first transgender surgery was done in the 1920s, poor results, as you can imagine. And then uh, the first really successful one was in the early 1950s. So Dr. Money was coming out of that experience where you have uh, this practical separation between what's going on in someone's head and their body. And so he came up with the idea that gender, instead of being a linguistic term, could be could um, capture the idea that people's social roles and how they lived their identity out in the in the world could differ from and didn't need to be driven by the reality of the sexed body. So again, coming out of these these populations that had these difficulties, he created this theory. And from that, this idea of gender, gender identity, that who you are is more how you function in society and how you feel rather than what, what the reality of your sex body is, 
that that idea was grabbed hold of by radical feminists who because of of some unjust conditions that you know, really existed back then women weren't allowed to to uh, apply for certain jobs or or have their own bank accounts sometimes apart from their husband or and, and things like that there were real stereotypical limits on women but what the radical feminists did was they grabbed hold of this idea of gender that separates the body from the identity and said you know that's that's who we are we are we women are not going to be defined by bi- biology and so there was a phrase that was common in radical feminism in the 60s and early 70s that biology is not destiny in other words who we are does not depend on the reality of our sex body and primarily this this idea then went into academia and the universities and and was theorized as gender theory within the culture people partly because of the the sexual revolution the word sex became synonymous with having sex instead of the reality of male and female. And because the feminists were pushing this idea of gender and gender roles, people, the average person became used to uh, using the term gender to refer to male or female, or to refer to the idea that we have sexual difference. And so in, in the colloquial language, gender meant male or female, but in academia and in origin, it didn't. It meant something different. So gender theory then became um, queer theory with the ideas getting more and more radical and denying human nature, denying the significance of the sex body, reinforcing the idea that uh, just as a matter of human autonomy and human rights, that the person can self-define. So in 2007, a number of uh, people who called themselves human rights experts, many of them associated with the United Nations or other international organizations, got together and drew up a platform called the Yogyakarta Principles. And these principles were not adopted as part of international law, but they are driving much of the agenda that we see. And in those principles, it talks about the the right of the person to self-define regardless of sex and so these these ideas are being pushed globally. We can see that if you look at a map uh, globally, and mostly from the U.S. and the West, the Scandinavian countries, the U.K., Canada is very much into this. So it's pushed by the West onto less developed countries or or developing countries, I should say, in Africa and Asia and the Caribbean and South America. Mm-hmm. It's being pushed on them as this being sort of the, the true and authentic and freeing understanding of the human person. But make no mistake, gender ideology is rooted in ideas that are aimed at destroying our concept of the person, of the family, of marriage, and of human flourishing. And you can see that in the writings of, of those who promote this. Uh, there was a woman named Shulamith Firestone who in 1970 wrote a book called The uh, Dialectic of Sex, and she was a radical Marxist feminist. And she envisioned in 1970 that women's freedom, that our, our freedom from oppressive systems of not just capitalism, but sort of reproduction, meant that women needed to envision a future where all reproduction would be outsourced, either done artificially or or somehow men would carry that burden as well. 
and she viewed the it was necessary to abolish the family in order for women to be free and equal. And so that was 1970 before technology even made all this stuff possible. But we see the very same sentiment now that denies that the the natural family is husband wife, you know, coming together, giving new life and and having children. It's now chosen family, whoever you you choose to associate with as an adult and and so so this ideology has um another writer called it an ideological hydra. You know, it, it just it's so encompassing, but we can talk in a second um, about how it came through our society, but those are the, the ideological roots of it and the, the errors behind it. Yeah. And as you're talking, I, I was thinking, you know, in addition to just the, the falsities that are at the foundation of this ideology, correct me if I'm wrong, are cracks starting to appear, particularly with women, and I'm thinking of uh, Martina Navratilova. Uh, a you know very uh, self-professed and very open lesbian who is very much uh, very critical of the gender ideology because ex- of exactly that of what it's doing to women. And so, speak to that. Is that uh, what's what's the reality with that? Yeah, and, and that's actually very true because we're seeing a divide. Whereas it's it's common to hear on on the political level. LGBT or LGBTQ or LGBTQIA or you know an endless progression of letters, but where the transgender notion, this idea that you can identify in a way that is trans or a cross identity, if you're male, you go female, or more broadly, you can just reject your your sexed body and identify however you want, whether it's ident- uh, non-binary, gender queer, or whatever. So as as the T became connected to the LGB. Originally, that that um, you know that that car ran along that road for a while, but now what we're seeing is the <laughs> lesbians coming forward, saying, "Wait a minute, no, 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 we know what sex is, <laughs> because our same sex mm-hmm. attraction yeah. is to someone with the same right. sex, and if females we're attracted to females, we're not attracted to males." who maintain their, their full body and their, their males, no matter how much they identify as females. So that has created a, a division between the LGB and the T because these feminists, particularly in the UK, but increasingly here, are being very vocal because they can see the harmful results that you are having males invading women's spaces. In fact, I was, I was reading something about the problem that um, women's lactation consultant groups and groups like La Leche and, and things like that are having with males who identify as women who want to be part of the group to be coaching women about breastfeeding or to uh, just to feel more womanly by being part of this this uh, breastfeeding group, which has forced the change in terminology not to breastfeeding because males typically are not viewed as having breasts, but as having chests. So it's now there's a, there's pressure to call it chest feeding. And in the same way to, um, to erase the idea that a woman who gives birth, in other words, a female carries the baby, gives birth, we're mothers, but the pressure in order to appease transgender activists is to erase this idea of mother and just call the person a birth uh, birth parent 
you know, a, a birthing person. <laughs> so just just erasing the reality of male female. So so some of the the lesbian activists have been very strong voices for the reality of sex. And again, this has medical implications, but many of them focus on the athletic implications. I think because that's intuitive for people to understand when you see a, a big strong guy running against uh, the typical teen girl, it doesn't matter that he identifies as as a girl. He's got the body of a male and he's, because of that, his um, oxygen carrying capacity is, is expanded. His muscles are bigger, stronger. He's got less fat. Just the, the uh, structure of his body is more conducive to strength. And, and so they're pushing back on the intrusion of males who identify as, as women or girls, their intrusion into women's athletics but there, there are safety considerations that many of the the, um, the lesbians and women's groups are also raising because what we're seeing, certainly in the UK and increasingly here in the US, is that many sex offenders who, who are predominantly male, when they're yep. arrested and incarcerated, there is what seems to be a little trend of them then identifying as female or as, as women and request to be housed yep. in the women's section. And you know what happens. And, and what, what is happening is you know, the, the government facilities at first bow down to this because they want to, their gender identity laws means they've got to treat someone equally just on the basis of gender identity, that self-perception and that declared identity. But they discovered mm-hmm. that creates problems. You put a male sex offender into a woman's prison just because he identifies as a woman, you're going to have women sexually assaulted. And in fact, that's what's happening. So, so these practical problems are, are real. And that is driving a wedge in the LGBT or LGBTQ community and is bringing forward the voices of women who don't agree with us on other things, but are very, very sure and very willing to speak up uh, to the reality of sex. But I I think it's important to understand how gender ideology came through the culture, because that also reveals something about what we're up against here. Um, And so I spoke about how gender ideology became this academic theory, gender theory, and then it it was called queer theory and uh, percolated in the universities and, and academia. But it also started coming through the culture. So no surprise that Hollywood and the entertainment media is, is all in on this. They're, they're always on the fringe. But the more problematic thing that happened about 20 years ago was the Human Rights Campaign, which is the largest lobby for LGBT causes, the lo- largest political lobby in the U.S., uh, set up their own benchmarking system for corporations where they said, we're going to measure you. We're going to judge whether you are treating people who are identifying at that time as LGB, whether you're treating them equally, whether you're supporting same-sex marriage. So they set up this criteria for companies if they wanted to be to earn the little badge that Human Rights Campaign puts out that that right. declares company is a you know uh, a best place to work. Um, they had to comply with certain certain criteria. They had to meet certain benchmarks. In the beginning, very few of the Fortune 500 companies 
were willing to have their human resources policies evaluated, but they became afraid of the bigot label. So now what you have 20 years down the road Mm -hmm. is the vast majority of of Fortune 500 companies comply with those criteria, those benchmarks that were put in place by the human rights campaign. And the human rights campaign in the meantime has made those criteria more and more radical. So now instead of just do you provide uh, insurance benefits for same-sex couples, it's do you provide in your medical insurance coverage for a transgender identified person to alter their body? Do you provide uh, philanthropy support towards organizations that advocate for transgender equality? Do you hire subcontractors who also have these SOGI policies, sexual orientation, gender identity policies? In other words, they, they have increased the pressure on the business community and really thoroughly co-opted them. But then they've replicated that model not just to business, but to medicine, to uh, local and state government, to education, to child welfare organizations. So through the culture, we had this immense pressure from the LGBT lobbies to, for all these cultural institutions to get on board with the agenda, or you're going to be called bigots. You're going to be boycotted. You're going to be labeled. And we have a great lack of courage, frankly, in the... Uh, leadership of these institutions. All right. Let's, let, let's talk about schools. What are the yeah. implications, Mary, of gender ideology for schools? Uh, they're huge. And in fact, a lot of this has been going on for the past 10 years, kind of under the radar of a lot of families. But what we've seen is that just as the, the uh, advocates of transgender ideology or gender ideology kind of captured these institutions of business, healthcare, et cetera, they also captured the allegiance and commitment of the major education institutions, the teacher unions, the uh, associations of school psychologists, people like that. And they, they sold them on the agenda and have been importing gender ideology into the schools, first through anti-bullying programs, which of course, Nobody believes in bullying. You know, we we don't want that. Uh, but they're except for these advocates, because that's how they're doing it. Is well, it. exactly right. It, there's there's a bullying element to anyone who doesn't get on board or aimed at anyone who doesn't get on board, especially if you have religious objections to this. But right. they they brought these anti-bullying programs into the schools under the guise of saying, look, these kids who identify as LGBT are harassed, persecuted, bullied. We need to protect them because they cannot learn in an environment where they're subject to bullying and harassment. But that these anti-bullying programs opened the door then for uh, ideological activists to come into the schools to uh, teach a new vocabulary the, the terminology of gender ideology, to change the school's norms, to pressure the schools to offer what they used to call gay-straight alliances, but now called gender and sexualities alliances. In other words, these clubs that uh, when I talk to parents, they call them recruiting vehicles for the LGBT movement because they encourage, quote, allies, in other words, kids who are not experiencing identity or attraction issues, to join the clubs, and then then they're encouraged to explore their own gender and sexuality and proclaim a different identity. So the school culture 
has been co-opted. And that's what parents need to realize. Unlike the sex education battles of the 70s and 80s, where some states carved out the rights of parents, uh, saying that there can be no sex ed unless the parents give permission or at least parents have an opt-out. There's nothing like that for gender ideology because you can't opt out of the culture. You can't opt out of a school culture. And the school culture is promoting this. And so there are only about four states, maybe five now, that have uh, specifically incorporated gender ideology into the culture, I mean, the curriculum of the school, requiring every public school to teach examples, historical examples of LGBT-identified persons or of the history of the civil rights of of LGBT-identified persons. But that's only the tip of the iceberg. So people who are focusing on curriculum, it's an important consideration. But if you're ignoring what's happening in the culture of the school, you're missing what the real influence is on these kids. And and I'll give you a practical example. In talking with families whose kids have been caught up in this, they say typically what happens is this was a non-issue. The kid may have had their own mental health struggles or, or sometimes kids who are on the autism spectrum, they have their own challenges, but they go to school, they learn about the whole uh, gender ideology framework. In other words, who you are is self-defined. You can choose any of these identities and that the source of your unhappiness is likely to be that your inner authentic self has not come out. In other words, you the source of your unhappiness is that you're really transgender and you need to be affirmed in that and, and that will be the solution to your problems. So these families say that typically their kids are first exposed at school and then the kid is curious and they go online and online is just, it, it's a sewer. There are all these communities out there that... Uh, communities that promote these these views, that any child who's exploring is instantly welcomed into these online communities and affirmed. And they find this friend group, any quiz they take, am I transgender, is going to come back, yes, yes, of course you're transgender, this is who you are. And so they can also go on YouTube and TikTok and see these videos that are done by their peers, by other teens and young adults who have come out as transgender or non-binary and are going through the process of transition. And the narrative is this, it's all happy talk. This is how I found who I really am. And, and, and now I've, I've solved all my problems. And, and these kids get caught up in that false promise. They're, they're seeking relief from whatever pain or discomfort or poor peer relations that they have. But transition does not provide that solution. And yet, that's what they're being taught. So you have that toxic combination of the schools introducing it where you have authority figures saying, yes, this is true. This could be who you are. And then you have social media that that pulls them in, gives them this supportive community. And then you have the counselors and the, the gender clinics, which literally put them on the conveyor belt, uh, tracking them towards this unhealthy, uh, just wrong-headed path of transition which again, you can't change sex. All you can do is is modify the body and destroy its function and create this psychological confusion uh, that in the end does not produce happiness. So those are the dangers that parents need to worry about. It's coming through the schools. It's coming through the culture. It's coming through entertainment, uh, Snapchat, TikTok. They promote this content constantly, 
constantly. So it requires real vigilance on the part of, of parents, uh, as well as those who youth ministers, things like that, people who are helping to shape and form our young people. Yeah. And I've heard too that especially the the online resources, not only do they paint the happy picture of so-called transitioning, but they also uh, they also set children against their parents. Uh, the language that's used against parents and you know parents are breeders. Uh, that's I know that's one of the term that's all they are. and you know it's really it's you. it's whatever you want and don't listen to to other people. it's you know, that message is being there's you know in addition to the positive look at look at me transitioning there's also very much a negative um message being being uh being sent to children as well yeah you're you're absolutely right you know on the positive message i've talked to a lot of middle school teachers who say it's sort of the cool thing for someone to come out as non-binary or transgender but on the on the negative thing when you you look at the online resources that are out, or you talk to some of these young people who have been through this and then transition, they will tell you that there are literally scripts telling these kids how to present their desire to transition to parents, encouraging them to threaten suicide, but reinforcing that idea that, that you just identified, that parents are the opposition, that unless they're willing to unequivocally affirm this new identity, toss out the name they gave you at birth and and go with your chosen name, validate this new identity, unless they're willing to do that, they are the enemy. And so it drives this wedge of alienation between parents and teens. And so much of this happens, Joe, before parents are even aware there's a problem. And that's one of the the really insidious things about this that their kids are becoming more and more hostile and more and more sure that their parents are unsupportive and and uh, don't have their best interests at heart. Well, the, the parents are, you know, going along clueless, thinking everything's fine. The kids just got normal adolescent mood issues and, and then are blindsided when the kid says, I, I want testosterone or I'm going to commit suicide or I want estrogen or I'm going to run, run away from home. And, and they're left literally kind of floundering it's uh yeah it's and unfortunately therapists oftentimes take the same stance of presuming that parents especially those who are conservative or religious are going to stand in the way of the child's authentic coming to their identity i'll add one anecdote about schools there, in many of the school's policies, they will state specifically that they will protect the confidentiality of a child's declaration of gender identity, no matter how old the child is. So that if a child comes to school, and let's say it's a, an eighth grader, and confides to a teacher or, or expresses to their coach or something that they they think they're transgender, the school will take the child aside and ask them how they can facilitate it, how can they support it, and ask them if their parents are supportive. And if the child says the parents are not supportive, the school is not going to pick up the phone and say, do you realize that when John comes to school, he changes into a skirt and he calls himself Jesse you know, or Jenny? They're not going to do that unless the child consents. And again, of any age. And so uh, I spoke to Montgomery County, Maryland is is one such school district that does this. Most of the big school districts do this, by the way. They, they may not advertise it, but they do it. And they, um, I called, them, called up the 
woman whose office is in charge of this and just talked with her. I think she thought I was from the other side because I said, I work on these issues. And so she talked to me about how they view themselves as being on the child's side and they're unconcerned with the parents' views. And so they are willing to hide from parents the fact that their own child is going by a different name in the school, is wearing different clothes, has requested to and been allowed to use the bathrooms for the opposite sex. They will hide that from a child or from a parent under the guise that they're protecting the privacy and confidentiality and safety of the child. And I, I said to this woman from Montgomery County, well, I, you know, don't parents get upset with you? And she, she said, yes, there was one mom who came in who was furious, who just said to me, how dare you? How dare you facilitate the transition of my child and not tell me? And the school employee said to me, I just send her to the lawyers because we're here for the kids. In other words, the school, many of these school officials, and of course, not everyone in, in public schools is, is uh, on the wrong side. There, there are many good people involved, but the ones who are handling these programs are firmly convinced that to be on the side of and support of children who are experiencing identity confusion means that they will see the parents as adversaries unless those parents are willing to commit to this immediate transition gender affirmation process that is being pushed by the other side. So it's it's not only promoted through the schools, it's deceptively hidden and facilitated by the schools. And now we have the added problem that Planned Parenthood has gotten into the provision of hormones in a big way. And there are right. high schools- yep that have Planned Parenthood centers in the high schools. Yeah, crazy. I was wondering, um, I'm assuming, Mary, and you said this at the end, that you're probably talking mostly about public schools, this, this phenomenon that's going on in the public school systems. How about Catholic schools? How have they been caught up in this ideology and, and how have they responded? Well, good question. Uh, it's definitely a huge problem in the public schools. And now under the Biden administration with the executive orders that they've put in place regarding uh, Title IX and and then if the Equality Act passes, it, this is coming through the, the public schools. It's already there, but it, it's, it's coming in an even bigger way. But you're right. Parents who have kids in, in Catholic schools cannot sit back and say, ah, oh, my kid's safe. Because in fact, I hear from, from parents of children in Catholic schools all the time. And the, the source of the problem seems to be twofold. One, you have many good people working in, in Catholic schools who don't know much about the issue. They're compassionate. They want to treat kids kindly. If they're teachers, they've been trained in the schools of education that tell them the only thing to do in these circumstances is to affirm a child, put them on the path to transition. So they don't know any better. And when they experience this situation, they do what they've learned in the secular training that they've received, which is to affirm and, and validate that transgender non-binary identity and, and couch it all in Christian love and compassion. That's that's one problem. There's there's in other words, people who just don't know. But there's there's another problem with there is um, there's an increasing number of schools, particularly schools run by orders of nuns or particular orders within the church, um, orders of priests that have bought into this. 
In other words, they have incorporated it as as part of their belief system. In being Catholic, you validate these these identities. You allow transition, you encourage it, you introduce it, you celebrate it in your alumni notes. If someone comes out as transgender and or engages in a a same-sex marriage. So parents need to be vigilant and find out where the school stands. And uh, I would also say that dioceses need to be clear about where they stand. And schools need to be clear that they're adhering to the truth about the person, that we're male and female. And they need to be be open about that. Put that in your policies. Used to be understood. We didn't have to do that. But now you do. And they're you want to do that for two reasons. One, because the more transparent you are about what you believe, you're going to have fewer problems, not more, because then people know where you stand. And those who who buy into the gender ideology um, are going to be more likely to self-select out of your application process and your admissions process. And second, those who don't self-select out, it gives you a basis to say, look, this is who we are. This is what we believe. You know, we, we accept people, but there has to be a fit here. In other words, you have to agree, even if you're struggling with your identity, that you're, if you're, if you're a female, you're only going in the female bathrooms because that's a distinction we uphold. So it gives you a, there's strength and clarity, there's strength and transparency rather than kind of the mushy stuff. So, so to your original point, Catholic schools, private schools, Christian schools, all of them need to be vetted individually to see how much they have uh, drunk the Kool-Aid, so to speak, the, the gender ideology that's out there. And, and again, some of them are well-intentioned, others it's a little bit more of agenda-driven, but in either case, families need to know. They need to know. Yeah. Yeah. I can't uh, uh, emphasize enough what you said, particularly about policies and everything else. We work, we at the NCBC work very closely with the Catholic Benefits Association. And that is, that's their mantra as well, too, is that Catholic organizations, whether it's schools, whether it's uh, healthcare uh, systems, by the way, there are health, Catholic healthcare systems that have bought into gender ideology as well. Um, but um, what diocese schools, healthcare systems need to do is really go back and take a, do an, essentially an audit of their Catholic identity and their mission and make it very, very clear and express very clearly in these policies to do exactly what you said. So, you know, maybe people who, who believe in this ideology will either select themselves out or maybe even more importantly that the diocese or the school or whoever it is has that legal bulwark behind it. So when, you know, when it says, listen, you know, Jane, you can't use the boy's bathroom. There's a, you know, there's a legal defense there. Right. Right. And I I think doing an audit of the policies is great. And there are several law firms and things that, that do that. I encourage people also to do an audit of their language. In other words, look at your forms. Are you asking on your forms gender? What is your gender? Erase it. It needs to say sex. Sex. And it's and the only two options are male and female. That we cannot however well intentioned people might have been in the past in using the word gender, we don't own that word anymore. And it's redefined in law and in policy and in the cultural understanding. So we can't use the other side's terms because they're false. They're built on false assumptions. So we need to speak about sex, sexual difference. Um identity in those terms, not in terms of cisgender, transgender, uh, gender identity, and even using the term gender dysphoria, 
that it's it's fine to acknowledge that some people might have that diagnosis, but we want to be careful not to validate that as as um, more than it is. It's a diagnosis in the DSM to capture the idea of a person, in this case, let's say a child who is experiencing conflict or distress because their self-perception does not align with their body. And but that's all that that diagnosis is. It's an acknowledgement to that distress. So we can speak about distress. The problem is when when people uh, use the term gender dysphoria and then buy into the whole transition um, the protocols that that will follow from that because that's the path that's set forward. That's the groove, you know. That once you step onto that, that's where all your policies are going to be led towards. So. Language is tremendously important, and and that's one reason why we have the terminology section on our on our website, but also provide more guidance directly to schools and dioceses that are concerned about these issues. Again, you have to reach out to us for that information because we don't post all of that on the website. This concludes part two of my interview with Mary Rice Hassan. In part three, Mary explains and critiques the so-called Equality Act. For more information on these topics and other bioethical issues, please visit our website, ncbcenter.org, and subscribe to our publications, Ethics and Medics and the National Catholic Bioethics Quarterly. The views expressed on Bioethics on Air are not necessarily those of the National Catholic Bioethics Center. If you have comments or questions about this or any of our podcasts, or if you would like to subscribe to our Bioethics Public Policy Report, please contact me, your host, Joe Zalot, at J. Z-A-L-O-T at ncbcenter.org. For archived editions of our podcasts, please go to our website, hover on the Blogs and Podcasts button, and then click Bioethics on Air. Finally, please remember that the NCBC has a 24-hour consultation service. You can contact us by phone at 215-877-2660 or by going to our website, again, ncbcenter.org, and clicking on Ask a Question. Thank you for listening, and may God's peace be with you.